Hello and welcome to Shakespeare and Pals. This time we are not doing Shakespeare and with each episode the title is more and more meaningless. This time we are doing The Duchess of Malfi by John Webster. Well, let's introduce ourselves. Oh, yes, uh, I'm Greg. Um, I'm here to talk about how little I know about John Webster and how much I love this play. Greg, what is your relationship to the Duchess of Malfi and John Webster? You've given us a very brief overview. Very little. I have read most of the well-known John Websters at one time in my life or the other, but I've never seen any of them on stage. And I'm sad to say I still haven't watched any of The Duchess of Malfi, despite there apparently being some good adaptations out there. Um, I read this one, reread this one recently, though, and I am a big fan. And I'm kind of a fan of looking into the background of the real Duchess as well. This sounds like it's actually based on reality more than a lot of Shakespeare's were based on reality. So This one was, it's based on a short story, which was based on a real life thing. So yeah. that is some link to reality. I'm not sure how much it is based on reality. I'm not sure how much documentary evidence they had at the time. But as for not being able to see this thing on stage, for anyone who is interested, the Globe Theatre has done a production, which you can find on their Globe streaming service. And on YouTube, you can find a 1970 British television production. Both are pretty good. It was a BBC version, too, that I think you can buy somewhere with Gemma Atterton as the Duchess. So, kind of cool, but I couldn't find it. (laughs) I shall pretend I know that name. Uh, A a very wonderful British actress that is still an up-and-comer, really, but is very well known for having the role of Strawberry Fields in the James Bond movie, Quantum of Solace. Was this the period where they stopped with the sexual puns and just needed to find any other pun? Basically, yes. Very yes, well. They were trying to make it more serious. But yes, Gemma Adderton's in the latest Kingsman movie, so it gives an impression of what happens to Shakespearean actors when they want to actually make money. My name is Michael. My relationship with John Webster and with this play is actually relatively deep. I wrote my honours thesis on... The White Devil and the Duchess of Malfi, which are John Webster's two most famous works. And for the sake of that, I think I've read both plays about six times each. So I am, it's been a while since I've read this play because of scheduling issues. So the, I read this play a few weeks ago, but because of how many times I've had to read it, it's relatively stuck in my memory. I'd say that it's a shame that John Webster's reputation has gone down among even the somewhat cultured public. So oh, yeah. Hope, uh, hopefully this podcast is going to do a little bit of effort to put him back into somewhat popular consciousness. Let's hope so. 
Um, the, on, quite honestly, if this was written by Shakespeare, I believe it would be known as one of his best tragedies. Um, and it is really sad that people don't realise just how brilliant this is. It's way too long, but apparently this is similar to Hamlet in that the written version was intentionally written longer than the formed. Is that correct? That's I read that somewhere. I'm not sure if it's true. I wouldn't know. Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. I did read something about the quarto being much longer than any notes suggested the performance was. And given how slow a writer John Webster was, I must imagine that did take him quite a long time to do. But let us... I will say that Sophie was meant to be here, but apparently she is still drunk from the night before. So we are going to do this just the two of us. But to begin, the biography of John Webster. Unlike Shakespeare, where we're sort of doing Shakespeare a few year periods at the time, for John Webster, we're probably not going to do him for... Another period, so I'm going to summarize quite a lot of his life. He was born around 1580, and his first real occupation was being in the Merchant's Guild, the Merchant Tailor's Guild, not because he was a tailor, uh, but because he and his father were cartwrights, and apparently they belonged to the Merchant Tailor's Guild. Because his father was a member of the guild, young John Webster was fathered into it. When it comes to his education and how he could write such good English, how he could know so many cultural Latinate quotes and plots, the reason is that the merchant tailors had a school, which most likely John Webster attended. This school made a particular emphasis of teaching English composition. They taught Latin composition, but first they must teach English composition. So that might explain his facility with the English language. Later on, he studied at the Inns of Court, which wasn't just for lawyers at the time. It had a far broader series of subjects you could learn there, but maybe, maybe he was trained to become a lawyer. Regardless of that, At the Inns of Court, there were a lot of literary types there, which he would have interacted with, and eventually with some of them he would go on to collaborate with. In terms of his actual working as a playwright, he was a slow writer. The reason why we have so few plays from him is not because we've lost them, it's because he just did not write that many. Both himself and his enemies really insult him for being an incredibly slow worker. His first famous work was The White Devil. At the time, it was a flop, and he blames this on the audience. He blamed the audience for being a bit not bright enough to understand his genius. But his Duchess of Malfi, the play we're looking at today, was a success in his own time, as well as now. After this, his reputation and his posthumous legacy does seem to go down a bit. His later works were a series of true crime, pot boilers, that sort of thing. But we're not here to slag off the man. Let us get into discussing his work today, the work which he is most famous for. 
the Duchess. I think it's, I think it's worth adding that Webster was also quite the poet, and famously T.S. Eliot said that he is misremembered as a playwright. Do you mean he actually wrote poetry, or do you mean the play should be viewed I, as poetry? I think it's more that the plays should be viewed poetry, and that um, a lot of, as I said, a lot of the plays seems to have been written post-performance, so there is a lot of extra things added. And so there's a suggestion we should be um, celebrating Webster less as a playwright and more as a poet and a writer. But, oh, another another point about his biography, John Webster's biography, is that perhaps one of the reasons why he was such a slow worker and how he could survive despite being such a slow playwright is perhaps because he was managing his father's business. He was one of the early examples of someone having a full-time job and doing their art on the side. Now, let us get into The Duchess of Malfi, Act One. In this opening act, which I believe is only one scene, if I'm correct about that, or two scenes. It's just one. Ah, just one. It's an incredibly long scene, but it gives us all the main characters. Antonio, the steward of the Duchess's house. The Duchess, who never gets a name. Ferdinand, the Duchess's brother. The Cardinal, the Duchess's other brother, who also never gets a name. And Bossola. The, I think we call them complex characters. Bossola, a complex, conflicted character who is working both for Ferdinand the Cardinal and spying on the Duchess. I'm just setting up all the pieces up front so we can get into it. We, be, we begin with Antonio, steward of the Duchess, returning from France, boasting about how good the government of France is, saying that the king, the great king of France, has purified his nation by first purifying his own household. He's kicked out all of the rotten, flatterers, sycophants, awful people in his household. And because of that, his country is now doing well politically. So, Greg, about this, to me at least, this is a fairly direct statement of, if not theme, then how we are meant to view what's going on later on. Well, well, I think part of it is also that a lot of this play pushes that um, common, let's keep the Protestants happy. Uh, The French king at the time was quite anti the Pope, um, or anti the side of Catholicism that James was against as well. So as so as much as it starts by you know pointing out that yes I I wish we were more like the French and we've got problems in our own court I think it was also this adding to the anti-Catholicism that runs throughout the entire play like that's why we know the cardinal as the cardinal only known as the cardinal even yeah. when he throws <laughs> off his cardinal's robes and becomes a soldier he is just known as the cardinal. Those bloody Catholics. Yeah. Yeah, that was his entire identity in a way. But on a less, let's say, historicist note, I hope I'm not alone in viewing this opening 
monologue where Antonio is saying to fix, ah, so admire it, in seeking to reduce both state and people to a fixed order, their judicious king begins at home. To me, at least, this does seem to be a statement, a belief, um, a thematic statement that in this play, the personal is the political, or at least the personal is inextricably causative of the political. And oh, definitely. That, yes. Yeah, and, and the fact that there in Malfi, the, the Duchess is supposed to be the person running the, the place, but Ferdinand and the Cardinal seem to get in the way. It's almost like they have three leaders. And I think Antonio is trying to make a comment there on how how can you run a place correctly when res- and not enough respect is given personally to the person running it. They do act as if she is still their, well, not even their little sister. I think she is a twin of Ferdinand. Uh, I do view that they do treat her as a subordinate, even though she does own this place. It is her duchy. Yes. And I would say that even though in this play, we don't actually see her governing, we don't see her doing any governing, but perhaps that more has to do with the fact that if the personal is political, then we can conclude about her governing style from how she deals with her personal issues. And those personal issues we shall very quickly encounter in this play. But suffice it to say, the Duchess is a young widow her husband has recently died, and the person who she has her eyes on is the young steward, Antonio. Before we go further, we should state the class makeup of this. This is certainly a duchess throwing her eyes on someone who is her social inferior, but we must remember that at this time, in order to be a steward at a house like this, you yourself also have to be a noble. This isn't like a a noble loving a commoner. This is a noble loving a lesser noble, just to get that confusion out of the way. So this is unusual, but it's certainly within the bounds of propriety. Yeah, it very much comes across that she is hiding this love, not because society wouldn't allow it, but because her brothers wouldn't allow it. That she she wouldn't be doing damage to her leadership, other than the fact that she would be angering her brothers. It is a love that would speak its name, but there are a few highly placed people who don't want it spoken, or don't want to hear it. Exactly. And there are even lines of Ferdinand saying that he doesn't want her to marry ever again. Perhaps because that would give him even less power. Ah, to get into that, Ferdinand and the Cardinal, they take different tacks towards saying to her, no, you don't marry. Whereas Ferdinand, let me find the quote, Ferdinand is quite against it. So Ferdinand says, you are a widow. You know already what a man is. Therefore, let not youth, high promotion, eloquence. And then the Cardinal says, no, nor anything without the addition honour sway your high blood. Marry! They are most luxurious, will wed twice. So the cardinal is saying, look, if you're going to marry again, make sure it is a nice man, an honourable man. But Ferdinand is already saying, no, 
Don't, don't marry at all. It's, it's, uh, it's sexual, it's, it's lusty, don't do it. So we get the sense the Cardinal is a more Machiavellian figure. We do get the sense, and I do think, it, it may even be less that the Cardinal is more Machiavellian, and pointing out how blunt and uninspired Ferdinand is. Ferdinand isn't the smart character in this play. When it comes to being blunt and uninspired, to me at least, it is. this is less about his general intelligence and more about a specific blind spot and a sort of a willful, what might almost say Freudian blind spot he has. I don't want to go into Freud, but it's sort of difficult to avoid it. That Ferdinand does seem quite unusually obsessive about his sister's sexuality. And later on, in a later scenes, this does become increasingly apparent as to what exactly he finds disturbing about this. I think later on, he does say, oh, when he discovers that she is having you know, an affair with someone, not even an affair, she is going out with someone, he, he says, oh, my mind is unwillingly transporting me to seeing them in the act. He is someone who, he is a brother who perhaps has a bit too much concern with his sister's sexuality. <laughs> That could be true, yes. And he is certainly um, portrayed as a very... What is the word? Um, Certainly portrayed as being very carnal in nature, his whole character. He is, uh, at the beginning, when he is first introduced, one of the characters, a guy called Castruccio, which is a very good name, Castruccio, you don't need to be told that he is being cuckolded. Castruccio says, oh no, my lord, you mustn't go out to war yourself. You're a lord. You should stay back. And Ferdinand says, no, a good man goes out and fights. So he's very you know, butch macho, this guy. Very sort of of the body kind of person. Uh, the cardinal is also of the body, but in a very different way. <laughs> Actually, it's the cardinal who's cuckolding Castruccio. And I was mentioning before, do you have any other points to make about the uh, carnality of Ferdinand? No, no, no. I I find Ferdinand to be the most the most black and white, but also the most superficial of the characters. I would say that the black and whiteness and the superficiality is not meant to be an insult to Webster, but is meant to be an insult to this. No, I think it, I character. think it is. Yeah, it, it is a well-designed character for him to be that way. I think uh, Webster has created the character to be this way, um, and I I think the evidence that this is a very intentional decision is how complex Webster creates the other characters. Um, the the cardinal to some degree, but uh, the one that blew me away is clearly Basola, um, which we get in scene one. This this person who seems to be a very violent spy, but also someone who is tired of that life. Um, he is someone who, throughout this, I get the sense that he, he is a hypocrite, but he knows he is a hypocrite. Yeah, he, and his... he hates that he's a hypocrite, but he doesn't know how to change. Yeah, there is one quote where he says... Um, so Bossler, he's talking about the card. So he's introduced, basically going up to the cardinal and saying, look, I've done some dirty business for you. Why don't you pay me? And the cardinal says, oh, no, no, go away, go away. I don't, I don't need to help you. Uh, you he says, um, 
you enforce your merit too much. That is, so stop, stop asking for money. Go away. Yes, yes. And so when he arrives, he's saying, you know, I, I, I've done your dirty work. Pay me so I can move on. And the Cardinal's like, no, no, let's keep you around. Let's make you spy on the leader of Malfi and continue doing dirty work for me without reward. Ah, this isn't the Cardinal who's saying this. This is Ferdinand. So he goes from one brother to the other. <laughs> okay. For some reason, I thought it was the ca- Cardinal doing it. But there we go. But Bossler, to get back to the idea that Bossler is a sort of conflicted character, and Bossler is of a kind of, it's a stock character type, a stock character type called the malcontent. This is a satirical character who's always going around talking about, oh, how awful people are, look at these hypocrites over there, look at these awful people over there, always commenting on how society is so awful. The most famous examples of this are Jacques from As You Like It, and the apotheosis of this kind of character is Hamlet. Some people put Hamlet as that, as basically the most three-dimensional and most perfection of the malcontent character type. Do you see any Hamlet in Bossler? I I see the fact that while most of these types don't look inward as often as Bossler does. So like Hamlet, he does look inward and he is willing to say, I am one of these hypocrites. Uh, I, what, I, what I feel is done really well is giving him this characteristic of being trapped by his own weakness. For he says, so Bossler is talking about Ferdinand and the Cardinal. He says, he and his brother are like plum trees that grow crooked over standing pools. They are rich, all laden with fruit, but number crows, pies, caterpillars feed on them. Could I be one of their flattering pandas? I would hang on their ears like horse leech till I were full and then drop off. So even while he's criticizing them, he says, no, I am a leech. I am one of the insects that's feeding on them. I'm not even the crow. I'm not even the pie. I am a leech. This level of awareness about himself. Yes, it is a lot of self-hatred. A self-hatred that only becomes reform at the very end of the play, when it's almost too late, and which has no real good effect. When it is too late. When it is too late. (laughs) Not even almost. The reform comes afterwards, which is the saddest part of his story. Before we move directly on, I'd like to go back to the Cardinal, because I find the Cardinal, he's a guy who is, I call him Machiavellian, but he is a guy who is almost too Machiavellian. He even, he is a self-centered manipulator, but he is so self-centered and so manipulated that he thwarts himself. Here we have Antonio saying of him, uh, he lay, uh, where he is jealous of any man, he lays worse plots for them than ever was imposed on Hercules, for he strews in his way flatterers, anderers, intelligencers, atheists, and a thousand such political monsters. He should have been Pope, but instead of coming to it by the primitive decency of the church, he did bestow bribes so largely and so impudently 
as if he would have carried it away without God's knowledge, some good he hath done. So the idea is that the cardinal, he, he might have become pope if he had just stopped bribing people, if he had just stopped trying to get this the wicked way, if he had just done it the honest way, he could have gotten further than he currently is. And this does come up later on, where that is sort of his undoing, that he can't help but try to trick people. Yes, he is someone who has to take what he considers to be the smart move, even when the direct move is probably actually more intelligent. Everything's got to be a plot. Everything has to have a twist. And talking about this right now, it's... I am realizing just how much of the ending is laced right in these opening pages here. Oh, I, th- I think that's a strength of Webster's that the ending is a natural consequence of the very first scene. There is no, there's no point where you go that wouldn't work that way. Everything seems pretty on point for what you would expect from the people we are introduced to. I remember there was, I think it was Northrop Fry's definition of tragedy was its inherent quality is inevitability. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's definitely found here. And even in the smaller characters, one character we haven't mentioned yet who was also a big favourite of mine is Cariola, the Duchess's maid, um, and her sense of loyalty to the Duchess is, like, unwavering from the very beginning. And there isn't a suggestion of oh Duchess look out you're doing a horrible thing or uh, any suggestion of I have to look after myself in any way. There's a real honesty and goodness about her in my opinion. I myself have have not I'm not an expert in these kinds of character relations but when we have we we have currently done uh, the two gentlemen of Verona where we have the, uh, yes, we have, we the have girl's name. Uh, yeah, so the have... servant woman in it is very much a cheeky and um, a, a, a very willing to give their opinion, uh, almost to the point where it's unrealistic that they speak to their um, superior in a way that perhaps isn't appropriate. Whereas Cariola acts like the perfect servant, which is something you actually don't see much in these plays. It is quite odd. There, I, there isn't, I think, the kind of uh, catharsis maybe for the lower members of the audience in that case, or maybe given the audience this play was written for. Yeah, there, there, there's no... no... There's no fool character. There's no character that is lower in stature, but is given the ability to show that they're better than those in higher stature. There's none of those sorts of tropes that you often see in a lot of Shakespearean plays. And I think the play is better for it. I think in in tragedy, this works really well. But to get back to... The crux of this scene are two points, actually three points. This is almost three scenes in one, but he manages to lace them all together into a single scene, moving from one nexus of conflict to the next. The first nexus of conflict is Ferdinand the car- and the Cardinal essentially circling the Duchess 
saying to her, oh, be careful about marrying again. Oh, don't try to marry on your own wishes. Oh, don't try to marry a man who we don't like. And in Ferdinand's case, saying, oh, don't marry at all. I don't want you marrying at all, little girl. So they are, tell- they are warning her. And she, despite her brothers just sort of uh, talking down to her, she is sort of holding her own. I, let me find a quote. Ah, so they are they give this sort of long, extended back and forth speech to her, where Ferdinand is giving one side of the speech, like saying, Hypocrisy is woven of a fine small thread, subtler than Vulcan's engine, yet believed your darkest actions, nay, your privacy's thoughts will come to light. And the Cardinal says, You may flatter yourself and take your own choice. Privately be married on the eaves of night, Ferdinand's and they go back and forth like this, until eventually the Duchess then says I think the speech between you both was studied. It came so roundly off. Which is a marvellous way to hit them down. It's like, oh, I bet you were practising this beforehand. This didn't come off the top of your head. It's an easy way to show how intelligent and self-aware she is. The Uh, only uh, time where I feel that her... that she sort of gives... uh, This is, I'd say, the ambiguity of her character is exactly... I mean, this is a play where the personal is political, and she is certainly a complex character. But I think in previous centuries, there has been an attempt to say, oh, no, she's entirely good. She's entirely a person wronged by this world. She is more sinned against than sinning. She has nothing wrong with her. Uh, But I find that this play does give some hints that she might have been a tad rash in marrying Antonio, a tad imprudent in doing this. As we Uh, said, for a lot of people, Yes, but uh, her society, she would have been able to marry him openly. Yes, but I mean, for instance, well, for for starters, there's one of those Freudian slips, I mean, Freudian slips that happens in these plays, which is what we just call subtextual, you know, lines. Like, for instance, Ferdinand says, uh, Marry, they are most luxurious, will wed twice. And Ferdinand says, Their livers are more spotted than Leban sheep. But the Duchess says, Diamonds are of most value, they say, that have passed through most jewellers' hands. Now, this line opens itself up to Ferdinand's response, which is, whores by that rule are precious. Now, the fact that the Duchess says diamonds are of most value that passed through most jewellers' hands, this does, the, the, the comeback is obvious. Yeah, yeah, it does seem like a strange analogy for her to make. So that is one of the... So she says to them, I am... Don't worry, I'm not going to marry. I'm not going to marry anyone. Don't worry about that. And then Ferdinand and Duchess leave. Oh, there's one important point we should say about their threats. Uh, Where Ferdinand... So the Duchess says... uh, Ferdinand says to her, You are my sister. This was my father's poniard. Do you see? How loathe to see it look rusty. Cost was his. Now, rusty, uh, the, uh, that does sound like it's going to be covered in red. It's going to be covered in blood. He is essentially saying to her, if you cross me, I am going to kill you. And he says, I'd loathe to see it rusty, not because it means you're going to be dead. I'd loathe to see it rusty because it was my father's. Now, this is an odd thing for a brother to say to a sister. But the fact that the du- but this also goes into perhaps the imprudence of the duchess in that she persists in getting married, 
even though she knows that Ferdinand has this incredibly unreasonable view towards her. That she thinks that, oh, later on we get the sense that she thinks, oh, as time goes by, people will calm down, my brothers will accept it. The fact that her brother has held a knife to her and said, and basically said, I'm going to stab you if you marry someone. Yeah, I think that's where she is um, more problematic as a character is where she she acts almost surprised at some point with what happens to her. And I think that is slightly out of character when that happens, but that's quite some time off. Yeah, the timeline of this play is quite odd. I think yeah. it, if you look at The White Devil, his previous play, it takes place over the course of a few days, it seems. Whereas this one, years will pass in between scenes, in between acts, I mean. Yeah, and it takes a bit sometimes. Sometimes it isn't very clear straight away how long has passed. Um, especially when they mention how many kids she has during this period of time. Doesn't she end up with three or four? Three children? kids. So that is at the very least uh, yeah. about two and a half years or so. We move on to the second crux of this scene which is Bossler. So Bossler has asked for help from the Cardinal, saying, I've done your dirty work, now give me my payment. The Cardinal says, no, go away. He moves on, but then, Ferdinand. Ferdinand says, I want you to do my dirty work. So Ferdinand hires Bossler, essentially to be a spy in the Duchess's house. He says to Bossler, you shall be the steward of her horse. And by this, you shall give me information. Now, Bossler, in the, as we've said, Bossler is a person who knows when he's doing wrong, but still does wrong, even though he hates doing wrong. He calls this, I think, he calls, it's either in this scene or later on, where he calls being an intelligencer, which is what they call a spy, uh, being an intelligencer is like being a quilted anvil or something like that, which is a lovely phrase. It is. It is one of many in this play. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not the sort of person who can remember them, but I do remember quite enjoying how Webster writes in this play. It is it's some quite beautiful language and some great lines. And there's a lovely exchange where you, you can really see how an actor would play this and even how they could play it for laughs, where, you know, Ferdinand is basically trying to get him to, to work for him. And Bostler says, he says, you take heed, or to suspect a friend unworthily instructs him in the way to suspect you and prompts him to deceive you. So he's saying, no, no, I don't want to do it. And then Ferdinand says, there's gold. And Bostler says, so, what follows? You can almost get this, okay, but, oh, you just need to show him gold. And he's like, okay, I'm, I'm getting closer. I want to do it. <laughs> uh, but then we have Bossler saying, what follows? Now rain showers as these without thunderbolts its tail of them. Whose throat must I cut? And Ferdinand says, your inclination to shed blood rides post before my occasion to use you. You can get the sense that Bossler's mind is already too much on the evil parts of life because he's been offered money and he says, okay, who am I going to kill? And Ferdinand says, no, I haven't asked you to kill anyone. Why? Who brought up killing people? I didn't say you to kill. I just want you to spy on someone. <laughs> I think this- that also points out how, yeah, Bossler just believes in the worst of these people and of himself. Um, but I also feel like Ferdinand's 
Ferdinand's refusing to believe in himself. Like, if Ferdinand was honest about himself, he'd be like, oh, yeah, you killed my sister, but just not yet. I, I've gotten the impression that from the beginning, the Duchess was doomed. Doomed, yes. Doomed, uh, but I'd say in Ferdinand's mind, she is doomed only possibly. Ah, whereas I disagree, I, I say that even Ferdinand, if he was slightly more self-aware, would know that he would never be with his sister and therefore he will eventually kill her, regardless of the existence of Antonio. Certainly. Ah, so... So it takes Bostler very little convincing. He, he at first resists this. He says, oh no, this money, I don't want this money. No, which hell, take your devils, which hell calls angels. So take them away. But then, Bos, but then Ferdinand says, I've given you a position in the household. Uh, and then Bostler basically just says, I would have you curse yourself now at your bounty, which makes men truly noble. Air should make me a villain. Oh, that to avoid ingratitude for the good deed you have done me, I must do all the ill that man can invent. So he's, it, it's a very, it's very easy to convince him. He's like, oh, you gave me something. Oh, well, I suppose I must be an asshole now. I suppose I must be a spy now. <laughs> so I would be ungrateful if I didn't do it. Yeah, I'm not sure so much as ungrateful as, you know, he knows this is his only, this is his only life, his only job. This is all he's good for. So yeah. saying it, um, that he would be ungrateful is like saying, Oh, I've got the choice of being a very evil man or a beggar. And so I'm not so stupid as to become a beggar. I have to ignore my morality for the sake of having a roof over my head. Certainly. I mean, I, I, when it comes to characters like this, I do wonder about... There are different levels of poverty... And for a person of Bostler's rank, I wonder what he would class as poverty. Yeah, I, I don't think we're supposed to be on Bostler's side, but I think we're not supposed to hate Bostler as much. Like, there, there is some empathy to be found about this character. Oh, certainly empathy. Uh, I, think, I think the only characters who don't get empathy are Ferdinand and the Cardinal. Pretty much, And yeah. even the Cardinal, there is a sort of uh, perverse empathy at the end. Yeah, even the Cardinal, you can at least... You can at least recognise him as a human being. I think even I... Ferdinand, towards the end, when he does sort of have his come-to-Jesus moment, um, and then he quite considerately goes mad. Uh, that... <laughs> I was going to say, like, it, he, he doesn't really get reformed. He just goes crazy. <laughs> he surely that is his mind punishing himself. <laughs> Perhaps. Moving on to the third nexus of the scene, we have Antonio and the Duchess, and secretly we have Cariola hiding behind a curtain, I believe, or she's hiding just outside. She can hear it certainly. But the Duchess and Antonio, the Duchess is in love with Antonio. And Antonio is in love with the Duchess, quite classic romantic tension. And the Duchess is hinting at wanting to marry him. And Antonio is desperately trying to avoid these hints because he believes 
essentially that I don't want to be arrogant. I don't want to uh, be so ambitious and so um, excessive and immodest as to believe that I could possibly have anything to do with the love life of my great leader. I think it's like not just great leader, but he he is that in love with her that he thinks she's too good for him. Yes, he says before that uh, she I uh, can't find the exact quote, but she is saying that oh look at you know her brothers. Antonio says her brothers are awful assholes, monsters, all of them. Oh, but look at her, a woman who whose pure virtue and beauty cuts off all vain, lascivious hopes. And I think that's a that's a level of complexity of character that makes Webster better than a lot of Shakespeare's plays. Is that this this is a guy who so wants the woman that she seems most most of Shakespeare's characters when when they fall in love with a woman, it's I must have her, I must have her. It's never oh I'm not good enough for her. You know that recent uh, Bloomsbury let's. Do novel versions of Shakespeare. Let's get famous world novelists to do new versions of Shakespeare plays. I think it was Tracy Chevalier who did Othello, and yeah. he, he or she—I can't—I don't know the gender of this person. They said, in order to make Othello make sense, I had to make all the characters primary schoolers. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the, the, there's some depth to Webster's characters in this play. I don't. As I said, I don't remember him that well, or the other plays, despite having read them. But rereading this, I, I was, I was blown away. All the characters are so deep. If the only one I struggled with was Ferdinand, and I came to realise that that was the point. I will say that, at least in my opinion, I would that character depth, character psychology, the quote-unquote realisticness of character psychological depth is merely one kind of the good art and good characterization. It of is, course. let's say that it is a more modern, uh, let's say of a course. more yeah, modern novelist. I, I think that's style. a better way of putting it is that it is a very, um, yeah, I, I want to say it's a naturalistic perhaps is the best way to put it. Naturalistic, a, a specific kind of naturalism. <laughs> A more, you know, the 19th, 20th century novel yeah. kind of realism. Yeah, and to me that also makes the tragedy hold better. I think one of the things I've always struggled with is the concept of tragedy when you don't actually care about the characters as much. Whereas this feels to me as a modern reader like a serious tragedy. I feel like tragic stuff has happened. And, yeah, but I accept that this is because it's a modern reading. But I care yeah. far more for the Duchess of Malfi than I ever could about Romeo or Juliet. Certainly. And even here, so we, I think in the Two Gentlemen of the Verona thing, we're talking about how in plays like this, you do need to take for granted love at first sight. But in this play, uh, so in Romeo and Juliet, that happens over the course of a few days, or even one day, really. Uh, they 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 meet each other. They they see each other. They fall in love. But in this play, Antonio is the Duchess's steward. He has known her for a long time. Their affection. We before this is before the play happened, but we can assume that they have known each other for a long time, and because of that, they have grown connected to each other. So we don't even need to take the leap of love at first sight. Yeah. 
Yeah, but th- th- this isn't even saying, oh, yeah, the love appeared from nowhere. They do get married quite quickly. Just in the same room where Antonio's saying, oh, no, I mustn't do this, I mustn't do this. And the Duchess is saying, she's, I think she's always trying to push him to do the... Uh, yeah, I think it was very much her decision more than his. Yes, she is desperately saying, no, do the man's part. You propose to me. And he's like, no, 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 I mustn't do this. Until eventually, I think she does kneel to the ground. Yeah, and but he... it's also, that's also, you know, but by modern standards, that's to be expected. She's the one in power. Certainly. Uh, in terms of power in this, I do find that, that I read somewhere that this has quite an interesting view of power. That, um, you know, because in this time period, in a in a marriage relationship, it is usually the man on top. The man is in the higher hierarchical position, yep. but the Duchess is in the higher social position than Antonio, and so the only way that she can have a equal relationship with her husband is if he is socially inferior to her. Because if her husband is, you know, a, an emperor, let's say someone higher than a Duchess, well, then she's going to be subordinated to that husband. If that husband is on her own level, like a a duke, let's say, well, then because he is the man in the relationship, he is going to be above her. But if she marries someone who is below her, well, yes, technically he is her husband, but she is still the social superior. So in that case, it's more in line with an equal relationship for her. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's a fair analysis of it. They get married. Now, the marriage in this. It is. This is a, a big bone of contention within the academic literature about this play. How both how valid is this marriage, and how valid is the audience meant to view it? Because this kind of marriage, where people just agree to marry each other behind closed doors, without not in a church, just with one witness or so, at a certain at the time this play was written, this was still a legal form of marriage, but. Uh, it was very because of you know the obvious problems regarding how to validate this, how to confirm these marriages. It was becoming much more unpopular. They were trying to discourage this kind of marriage from going on. So the, uh, I think it, Ferdinand later on, Ferdinand does certainly believe that this marriage is not real. It, it has no legal holding in the world. He calls her children bastards because he fundamentally does not believe that what they did is true marriage. I think this is just meant to be an inherent point of ambiguity in the play. But what do you think? I think this is one of the many examples of Webster being outwardly political. Uh, and it, 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 to an Englishman in the early 1600s who is an Anglican, the Church of England, this would count as a marriage with no hesitation. But to a Catholic, it might not. Mm. And I do think that pops up multiple times throughout this play, that political side. I think it's the reason why the Cardinal is portrayed as more Machiavellian, even when he doesn't need to be. And certainly. Before we end, I'd like, I've been mentioning how the Duchess might be a bit too hot in the blood than yes. perhaps her defenders would like us, let's say, her, her, in the Victorian era, there was very much this view that, oh, she is a saintly figure who is martyred by the world. Uh, 
But I'd say that in the present age, we can accept that she has been wronged even without calling her a saint uh, or with even without calling her a chaste person. Because the, the final, one of her final lines in this act is her saying, I understand, I, I would have you lead your fortune by the hand unto your marriage bed. You speak in me this, for we are now one. We'll only lie and talk together and plot to appease my humorous kindred. And if you please, like the old tale in Alexander and Lodowick, lay a naked sword between us, keep us chaste. Oh, let me shroud my blushes in your bosom, since tis the treasury of all my secrets. So she has, so she has already um, broken the metaphor. She is saying, let us be chaste. So let us, like in the old tale, put a sword between us so that we won't have sex with each other, so that we're kept apart. Oh, but now let me bury my face in your bosom. So let me get close to you. Let me break the sword between us. So already we are getting a hint that, oh, yeah, I mean, this is sex within what She's some would horny. call marriage. She's a horny woman. Yes. Yes, and, certainly. Uh, it was try. It tried to be hidden because everyone agreed that the Duchess of Malfi was good. Um, so at different times, people have tried to downplay the fact that she was very sexually active and passionate. Whereas now we get to go, no, no, that's that can be part of being good. We don't have yeah. to ignore that part of her character. Yes, it's like in Victorian era editions, um, editings of. Uh, Othello. There's a part where Othello says of Desdemona, she covered me, the line is something like, she covered me in kisses. Uh, but some editors thought, no, that's that's too strong. A good woman like Desdemona would not do something so sensual. It should be, she covered him in size. That is, that is how, in order to make this woman good, we have to make, we have to essentially castrate her to mix metaphors. Which is sad, but well, it's sad to me. Perhaps it's not sad to others. Perhaps it's disgusting. I'll let the audience decide on that one. But that is Act 1. We have the setting up of the spy bossler, the uh, obstacles to love, the Duchess's brothers Ferdinand and the Cardinal, and we have the marriage of Antonio to the Duchess. Act two. We cut forward in time at least nine months because the Duchess is not only pregnant but is almost ready to go into labour. And Bossler, who is firmly a spy in the household, suspects she's pregnant. And he uses quite an interesting method of, uh, I think, inducing pregnancy. I'm not sure exactly what his plan plan is. He gives her, I assume, uh, to a modern eye, it does seem like he's trying to take advantage of her pregnancy cravings to figure out if she's doing something, where he gives her, here are some apricots that I have found. Have these apricots. I, I have an original spelling edition of this play, and apparently the original spelling of apricot was apricoc. So that really oh. gets towards the deeper meaning, the so very deep meaning. Bit of a pun there it. happening as well. So, do you have any views on his basic plan? Does he intend to induce pregnancy in her? I 
don't know and I didn't look into it, but there was part of me going, I wonder if like apricots are one of those things, yeah, that you avoid when you're pregnant because they make you feel sick or whatever. So that that's how I read it as. If, if, if it is that apricots were known to have induced labor, that makes sense as well. But I do think, yeah, he's trying to use them as some clever way to prove that she's pregnant kind of like how if this was a modern play it would be he's trying to insist she drinks some wine yes or try to sneak her a pregnancy test maybe uh, uh she, he does say i observe our duchess is sick a days she pukes her stomach seeds the fins of her eyelids look most teeming blue she wanes its cheek and waxes fat its flank and Contrary to our Italian fashion, wears loose-bodied gown. Essentially saying, either she's getting fat or she's pregnant. <laughs> but then we have, in terms of the hierarchy, in terms of this play's theming, we have Bossola making some quite conflicting speeches about hierarchy. Yeah, this is one of those things I would have really just cut from the play to make it shorter. Do you mean, would you have cut one of them or would you have cut both? I would have cut everything to do with Bossler and Castruccio. I would have cut, I probably would have even cut um, everything to would, do with Julia. Would you have cut the on. parts where he is essentially telling an old woman she shouldn't wear makeup because she looks like a, a, a woman who has cut her face off or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, none of this really, it, it, it clouds the character of Bossola slightly and it slows the story in a way that it doesn't need to be slowed. I don't think it adds as much thematically as it's intended to. It is certainly... I I wonder whether a second draft would remove these things, but I will say that Standing on their own, these moments do tend to be quite... I mean, I, I myself, I would keep in the Julia stuff. That stuff I do view as being entertaining and... Oh, I, I'm not saying that they're not entertaining, and I do think they're very well written. Um, As scenes in themselves, they are good. I don't have a problem with them. I just think, God, this play is so long. And, you, yeah, you could lose these without doing much damage to the, to the play at all. I find, at least in my opinion, I don't find the... Like in modern, you know, if you go to a screenwriting class, they say if you can remove something without changing anything, then remove it. I don't particularly view that as particularly a reason to remove things. I don't know. Modern screenwriters don't like to do the 90-minute movie anymore. Or is that merely them failing on their own terms? Perhaps it is. No, I don't mind additional things. Um, you know, certainly I haven't minded it in a lot of Shakespeare plays. But these are quite long scenes, and they're not overly funny. They're not overly dramatic. They just are. I'd like there to be a production or a film of this play where everything is kept in just for the sake of completeness. <laughs> Like how the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet, four hours long. I was going to say, like Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. And even that cuts out quite a lot. Yeah, I hope I... that the Amazon version puts in Tom Bombadil. 
he comes in incredibly early in that novel. I, I knew that Tom Bombadil was there, but I thought he'd be somewhere in Return of the King. But no, he's right. He's the first person they meet. Yeah, I, 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 I think I am one of those people who likes nappy stories. Well, if, if it's added as something extra and separate, it's got to really stand out for me to want you to keep it. And these scenes don't stand out. They just drag for me. They're good, but they they drag out the story. And I think they really damage the story towards the end where, like, this is a play with five different endings, which doesn't help as well, but... Like Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Yeah. We have, uh, we have another example of the Duchess being, if not immoral, then certainly imprudent. Where she is, so she she's getting pregnant. She's doing her best to hide it, but but she does she does she's almost pushing Antonio to be more open about their relationship. She is saying, "I have heard you say that the French courtiers wear their hats on for the king." And Antonio says, "I have seen it in the presence. Yes, why should we not bring that fashion? Tis ceremony more than duty that consists in the removing of a piece of felt." You the example to the rest of the court. Put on your hat first. So she is pushing him. Oh no, be more familiar with me. Go on, do it. Go on, put your hat on. Don't act so formal with me. Now, in this world where her brother is, that I'm going to kill you if I find you having sex with anyone. Pushing her husband to be her secret husband to be more open with her to be more. Um, yeah, this, this does seem like she's pushing. Okay, pushing it. So, so I didn't read it as such. Uh, you. you... You're right, but when I first read it, I was reading that more of just more evidence of her being the progressive character. Ah. And that she agrees with Antonio that the French are doing it correctly. Yes, but he is set. But I'd say that. But, 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 but I like your interpretation because it means it's more important to the story. Yes, and especially it, it explains his hesitance, where, you know, he was boasting of it beforehand, but now that the Duchess yeah. is telling him, you do it, he's like, oh, I have seen it. No, not me. Like, in, <laughs> yes, he's saying, he's like, no, no, stop, stop doing this. I don't, 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 don't push me to this. He says, you must pardon me. I have seen in colder countries than in France, nobles stand bare to the prince, and the distinction we thought showed reverently. So he's like, no, no, it, it's better. Don't, don't make me do this. Yeah, uh, Antonio never wants to be the center of attention. Certainly, and I think, frankly, that you know, given how Bosler has been spying on them for a very long time, and no one, he doesn't, and no one ever really suspects Antonio of doing this. It's one of those things where later on, even when they discover that she has a child, that the Duchess has a child, no one suspects Antonio for some no. reason. No, he, he seems to come across as the, the, the hidden man or the invisible man. Yes. And it's not even that he's viewed as being a good man. I think Bostler goes on to say, oh, he's a bored. He's, you know, he, he's, a, he's a pimp, essentially. But, you know, it's not that people think, oh, he's such a good man. Of course he wouldn't do this. No, they, they think he's an arsehole. But they never suspected it's him. And uh, is this, I, I, I wonder, is this just a plot thing? Is this just a thing? Or is there some deeper meaning to this? I, I think it's a plot thing. I think it's just this, you know, this is a guy who is no threat to the Cardinal or Ferdinand. And therefore, he, when they find out that there is a threat, they can't imagine that this guy who never had been a threat before suddenly would be. 
And they, certainly... they would be looking for all the people that they had already suspected to be a problem. And certainly in Ferdinand's mind, Ferdinand yeah. is saying, oh, it must be se- he's having sex with commoners. Strong-thighed bargemen. Oh, I'm just imagining this um, ascent, just some incredibly lascivious pornography in his mind at that point. Ah, uh, very much so, yes. Um... But by the end of this scene, <laughs> the Duchess ha- is going into labour. She needs to give birth. And they, they very quickly hide her away. And the way that Antonio, using... We haven't mentioned this before, but Antonio has a friend called Delio. And Delio says, no, calm down, Antonio. Uh, so Antonio is a guy who goes to pieces very easily. He, don't, he doesn't... He, he, uh, he can't handle stress. So he needs Delio to tell him, no, 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 just just take her to her room. Get a midwife. Don't don't ask for any official doctor. And just lock everyone else in their rooms. Find some reason to lock them in their rooms. And the way Antonio does this is saying that, oh, someone has stolen. Someone has stolen her jewels. So I want everyone to stay in your room so we can search you later on. I don't want I don't want the thief getting away. So that's how he does it. So everyone has to stay in their rooms. No one can see the midwife and all the serving women sneaking into her room to deal with the pregnancy. But everyone has been locked in their room so the pregnancy can go forth. And now we have another turning point in the play where Bossler, he's wandering outside because he's heard screamings, which I believe, I I think, ah, so sure, I did hear a woman shriek, you know, a pregnant woman. But he's saying, what is this? What is this? Uh, and what happens now is that Antonio is coming from the other direction and he has the uh, the baby's nativity. He has the baby's astrological reading. Yeah. And this is this turns out to be what's going to catch him red-handed. Which I think I think works quite well as a plot point. That's a nice way for Bossler to find out. Yeah, so they so you know they, they encounter each other in the dark. Now this is a play where finding people in the dark is going to be a very important plot point later on. So that so Bossler and Antonio and Bossler say, and Antonio says, "Who are you? Why are you here? Weren't you told to stay inside?" And essentially, you know, as they have this interaction, they start insulting each other, and it, Antonio drops his handkerchief, and he also drops something else. He drops the nativity, and when he leaves, Bossler picks up the nativity, and he finds, "Oh, this is a nativity. This is an ast- astrological sign for a baby," which means, ah, that the Duchess has had a baby. So, and and then he says, so, the, so this precise fellow, that's Antonio, is the Duchess bored. So again, so as 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 we were saying, they don't suspect that maybe Antonio is the one who has done. No, they just assume he's a servant passing on the message. <laughs> yes. And then I uh, so now we have scene three, and we have the Cardinal and Julia the. We're revealing that Julia is cuckolding her husband, Castruccio. This scene is not really that necessary, I don't think. Let me scroll through. Yes, yeah, not that necessary. It's just yeah. sort of establishing her character, that she yeah. is in this place. Well, which also says something about how little I think of this story. I think part of the reason I think so little of it is it happens in the middle of Act 2 of this play. It is already a long play. Do we really need an additional story added in Act 2? And now we get to scene 5. And this is where 
you know, the shit hits the fan. Ferdinand and the Cardinal have found it. And it's a scene that re- that really opens on a bang where Ferdinand is saying, Our sister damned! She's loose in the hilts! Grown a notorious strumpet! That is... And we we really get to see how unraveled, how unstable Ferdinand is. I think this is... While, while there are hints in the previous scenes, this is where you walk away going, yeah, Ferdinand's nuts. Yes, and the Cardinal is saying to him, you know, so he's like, you know, the third, Ferdinand is saying, I have reason to be angry, I have reason to be angry. And the Cardinal just says, yes, I can be angry uh, without this rupture. That is not in nature a thing that makes a man so deformed, so beastly as doth intemperate anger. Chide yourself, you have diverse men who never yet express their strong desire of rest, but by unrest, by vexing of themselves. Come, put yourself in tune. They said, look, I'm angry. I am angry, but I can control myself, you beast. And And this is certainly where I sort of get a lot of the view that Ferdinand is almost incestuously obsessed with his sister's sexuality, because this is where he says, he said, methinks I see her laughing. Excellent hyena, talk to me somewhat quickly, or my imagination will carry me to see her in the shameful act of sin. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, happily with some strong side bargeman, or one of the woodyard that can quite the stretch, or toss the bar, or else some lovely squire that carries coals up to her privy lodgings. So he can, he's not just imagining her having sex, he's imagining her having sex with a parade of lower-class gentlemen. Yeah, he's he's really getting into the fantasy of it all. Yeah, But I it think is. it's twofold. I think it's both he obs- is obsessed with her at a carnal level, but also he is crazy. He, he would get this angry over finding a mark on his cutlery. Yes. I'd, I'd say that... When it comes to craziness, I'd say that his craziness centers almost entirely on his sister. That it's not a mark on his cutlery, it'll be just a mark on her. So, but, you know, despite his anger, despite him, him flying off the handle, he does say, ah, he, he, so he's, you know, he's saying she's loosened the hilt, awful woman. He, he does seem like he wants to kill everyone who has anything to do with her, but he says, nay, I have done. I am confident had I been damned in hell and should have heard of this, it would have put me into a cold sweat. In, in, I'll go sleep. Till I know who leaps my sister, I'll not stir. That known, I'll find a scorpion to string my whips and fix her in a general eclipse. So he's he's basically saying that, look, I am angry, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to take some time to figure out who's doing this. Which yeah. is more self-control than you'd think. But this does sort of get us the, um, the ambiguity. I mean, at the beginning, we were saying that maybe he is the the most shallow character, but we do have some mm, complexity here that even though he is incredibly angry, he's a type of person who can stow that for a long time in order just to find who he wants to kill. But that really isn't that complex, is it? It's just, he wants to, he wants to make sure this person dies. Uh, but there is something in being able to like, what was that um, thing from the Avengers movie where the Hulk, where Bruce Banner says, you know what my secret is? I'm always angry managing to turn, you know, these bursts of rage into a steady level of passive aggression that he can turn on and off at will. So that is Ferdinand in this case. Yes, okay.
three. We have Antonio getting very stressed because not only does he have two more children, though we are, another large period of time has just come quite quickly, but also the people in the duchy are starting to realize that she is having, let's say, what they believe to be extramarital affairs. Antonio says, the common rabble do directly say she is a strumpet. Well, and he, reason. yes, and Antonio, and you know Antonio's reputation is is also not that good. People don't think he's having sex with her, but they say they do observe. I grow to infinite purchase the left hand way, and all suppose the Duchess would have ended if she could. So they, so people not only you know, they think he's doing something wrong the left hand way, but they don't think the Duchess even likes him. So this. Uh, Despite the fact that the Duchess seems to want to give away the secret earlier on, it does seem that they're very good at keeping the secret. In a way, they are very good at keeping it. They just are very bad at dealing with the consequences of keeping it. Yes, given that you know earlier on in the first act, when they've just gotten married, the Duchess was saying, look, we, we'll, after we get married, after we have our night together, we will, uh, we will find a way to deal with my humorous kindred. We'll find a way to deal with my brothers. She hasn't done that. It's been years, and still they're sort of having, oh, shit, how can we keep this a secret now? It, it, I, I don't think it's more about how we can keep this secret. It's she doesn't care. Huh. She doesn't care about who she offends. She, she likes the way things are. She, she has. It is probably the one failure of her, in my view, is that at this point... She is that self-confident that she's blinded by it. Yes, in the middle of this act, we certainly see how her self-confidence becomes, literally, literally becomes a vanity, where she literally cannot see her enemy approaching. Yeah. And what happens next is almost like a sitcom plot. It's like a Seinfeld plot, where the brother is staying for dinner, and they're trying to figure, oh, how can we keep this a secret? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it does feel very melodramatic. <laughs> so we are so Ferdinand and the Duchess is uh, there. Yeah, so there's a bit of discussion between Ferdinand and the Duchess, but then we get into uh, the central scene of this play where everything comes out. First, we have the Duchess and Antonio in their bedroom having some saucy bedroom talk, saying that ah, so. You know, the Duchess says, you are a lord of misrule. In, indeed, my rule is only in the night. Aha! Ah! Ah! <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I find this to be... We have an action... This is, uh, let's say, perhaps one of the most realistic scenes of love in Elizabethan literature. This is not the passionate outbursts of young love that we see in lots of Shakespeare plays. This is a married couple in their bedroom, making somewhat saucy talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is another example of where you really read these characters as, for, for the most part, they're all adults. Certainly. They're, they're, they're not acting like children. They're, ac- they're acting like stupid adults instead of acting like children. Yes, and the way that they they lose, it's not like it's not like they Antonio and the Duchess are so overcome with passion they must spend the night together. No, they they both realize. No, I'm going to have to sleep somewhere else tonight. I'm just yeah. coming in here to say, you know, goodbye. It's it, 
they they found out for an entirely different reason. Yeah. Now I did, but there is a lot of speeches in this scene that, in let's say, an abridged version, will be quite easy to cut out. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is definitely one that could be a lot shorter. Yes, like Antonio goes on a long sequence about which mythical women became which trees and stuff like that. And yeah, so there, I mean, I I always hesitate to say that something is bad. I mean, if I I go back and re-listen to the previous podcast, I'm pretty sure I am not hesitant to say certain things are bad. But I am hesitant to say things are bad. Take my word for it, listener. But I'd say that this is stuff that, for the interests of time, one could quite easily remove. Yeah. I think that's fair. So, as Antonio, so they are, you know, Antonio can't risk being in this bedroom because Ferdinand is staying the night. And one gets the sense that even though you can't really, you shouldn't barge into your sister's bedroom, but. you wouldn't put anything past him. And frankly, you shouldn't, uh, as as this scene will show. But they're having saucy talk to each other, but then the Duchess is looking in her own mirror, and she keeps on talking there. But Antonio, no, so Antonio and Cariola, they say, oh, let's sneak out of here. And that turns out to be their undoing. Antonio not wanting to interrupt her monologue to tell them she's going. <laughs> uh, because as she keeps on speaking, as she's looking into her mirror, and as she's speaking, as she's still talking to who she believes is her lover, and uh, uh, Ferdinand emerges from the darkness. Now, I can imagine, I haven't seen any of the productions, but this is a scene that sort of cries out for the stage. It is a scene that is, it's sort of incredibly ominous, like in this, you know, it's a dark room at night. She is, she is in the most vulnerable state. She's in her nightdress combing her hair as she's looking at her mirror, and then from the darkness, we have her murderous brother just emerging towards her. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think you can imagine the visuals of this being quite decent. And we, uh, we I have been trying to say that, you know, she is not as uh, stainless a character as some productions and some uh, interpretations put her. But this is the scene where we definitely get that she is a strong character. She is not a character who's going to be cowed easily. Or she says, so no, she, she's, you know, third, this is, uh, she's giving the speech, and this is after Ferdinand has emerged, but it is just about when Ferd, she's about to see Ferdinand. So, is, so before she sees Ferdinand, she thinks she's talking to Antonio. She says, uh, but you will say love mixed with fear is sweetest. I'll assure you, you shall get no more children till my brothers consent to be your gossips. Have you lost your tongue? And then she turns around and sees Ferdinand. Tis welcome. For know whether I am doomed to die or live, I can do both like a prince. So in the line, there's like, it's a half line, so there's a pause there. But she doesn't, it's sort of a pause. I mean, There's also quite a dramatic pause. Like, oh dear, he's here. But she doesn't start being scared. She says, no, I'm prepared to die. If you're going to kill me, do it now. Yeah, and I, I like how she approaches death throughout the entire play for that reason. There's, there's a very sense of, I'm just going to remind you here that I am a duchess and I'm not going to fall apart no matter what happens to me. 
I'd say that it's something interesting about this that when it comes to her justifying what is that what she's doing, she say she first she's like begging Ferdinand, oh just let me speak, come on, let me speak. Uh, but then he says, it's like look, no, I'm not. She says, I pray, sir, I am married, so you know, I'm not doing any affairs. I am married to this man, and, and Ferdinand says, so. It's like so what? I don't care. <laughs> I also uh, don't read it as her offering a defense as much as a oh you poor silly brother of mine you don't even know what's going on. Yes. Like it's not her trying to get out of anything. It's oh well I might as well tell you since you you are so ignorant. But, some, but sort of my point is that she is saying that look I am married this is entirely legal and it's only towards the end of this that she sort of says why should only I, of all the other princes of the world, be cased up like a holy relic? So it's only now that she, she's been defending herself in private terms. Like, no, I am married. I'm not a lustful woman. I am married. But now she's like, no, I am a prince. I am a duchess. I am a political leader, just like you. Why should I be beholden to what you wish? Yeah. Ah, and, and another, just... <laughs> To, to get into things that could be removed. John Webster does this thing where in the middle of a very tense scene uh, where, character, where there's sort of an interpersonal danger, they'll have one of the characters just stop the scene to give you a long allegory. So we have the Duchess oh, yeah. saying, it's like, you are in this too strict and were you not my princely brother, I would say too willful. My reputation is safe. And then Ferdinand goes on an extended allegorical tale about the figures of reputation, love, and death. That it reminds, it's in the White Devil. He does something similar, where there's a there's a uh, you know a big uh, brouhaha between the you know the, the main lovers, and the, one of the characters just starts going on a a, a an extended metaphor about a crocodile and the bird. So he he likes doing this. This is an intentional choice on John Webster's part, putting in these things here. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems to be an exercise he enjoys doing, and perhaps too much. Maybe it's like once he's written it, he, he can't stand the idea of losing it. I remember somewhere saying that he is someone who does seem to be writing with his commonplace book open beside him. He does seem to be writing like he's got his notebook out where he's put down, like, oh, I, I was reading Montagna the other day. Oh, here's a lovely anecdote. Let me put this right in here. But we have uh, Ferdinand base, basically saying that um, he starts screaming out uh, that, no, no, you, uh, I, I, I don't know who you are, and I would have killed you. But no, pray that no one knows who you are. Pray that no one sees you, because if I see you, I will kill you. And then he leaves. And one gets the sense that something terrible is going to happen soon. But still, he does not know it's Antonio. Still, no one knows that it is Antonio who is having sex with her. No, so, somehow. Yeah, somehow everyone is too dumb to work it out. Or Antonio, as I said, Antonio just seems like the invisible man. The one you forget was in the scene. And we have another see, another instance of Antonio not doing well under pressure. Like he comes in with a pistol. Now the oh, fact yeah, that he only comes in, <laughs> yes, the, the fact that he only comes in now with a pistol. He could have come in beforehand, but no, he does. He only comes in now after the person to shoot is gone. Yeah, he, he Antonio is a good guy, but he's not bright, and he's a very 
He's a very cowardly man. Certainly. Um, and I, th- I, th- I think that was, you know, intentional. I think Webster made a real effort to ensure that the Duchess stood out as the strongest character, even if that meant sometimes making all the other characters look cowardly. And on that note, the Duchess is the one who makes a plan for how they can get to freedom, where, yeah. you know, she sends, a, she, she concocts a story, a fiction, that she is exiling Antonio, you know, saying, you've embezzled my money, get out, but this is secretly just to get him away into a safe place. And then, you know, afterwards she is going to pretend, uh, so no, that, that's later on, but I, there's a there's one moment in here which I do think is telling because you know how we were saying the personal is political in this play, yep. and how at the beginning of this play we have Antonio explicitly saying some of the good things about the French king um, and the French system of government is let me Antonio says I admired it in seeking to reduce both state and people to a fixed order. Their judicious king begins at home, quits first his royal palace of flattering sycophants, of dissolute, infamous persons, which he sweetly terms his master's master, yada, yada, yada. So he says that part of, you know, purifying the state is by purifying the household, getting rid of flattering sycophants. So now let's look at the kind of people that the Duchess has in her house. So she has just kicked out um, Antonio. In front of everyone, she has said, Antonio is an awful man. He's been embezzling from me. And then the Duchess, Duchess says to her officers, I would know what are your opinions of this Antonio. And one of the officers says, uh, I could not abide to see a pig's head gaping. I thought your grace would find him a Jew. The third officer says, I would you had been his officer for your own sake. And the fourth officer says, I would have more money. Uh, the first officer says he'd stop his ears with black wool. And to those that come to him with money, said he was thick of hearing. Second officer says, some said he was a hermaphrodite, but he could not abide a woman. So these are people who are saying absolutely outrageous things about him, going so far as to say something absurd, like he is, a you know, for the time period, saying someone's a hermaphrodite, I would assume is basically saying, oh, he's a mythical creature. <laughs> it is, they they are people who are trying to, they are flatterers. They're trying to say, yes, you are right for throwing him away. He wanted, he loved that the French king got rid of. Yes. So the fact that maybe she just inherited these flatterers from her dead husband, or maybe her own rule has fostered them. But needless to say, her rule has not, unlike the French king, she hasn't gotten rid of them. Her rule has yet to get rid of these bad people. in it. But it also then stands out that she listens when Bossola believes that Antonio is innocent. She is a bit, maybe she is a bit too ready to believe him here. <laughs> Especially since she, she should remember that the reason Bosler is in her house is because Ferdinand explicitly said, I'm giving you this man as your servant. What I find interesting is that, yeah, the Duchess trusts Bosler and also respects Bosler enough that she wants him to know the truth when she didn't care about her other servants knowing the truth. Certainly. Like, it suggests that Bossler has actually ingratiated himself with the Duchess quite well. He is good at his job. Or perhaps uh, he is, you know, she is in such a desperate state that anyone who is willing to show some affection for Antonio 
who is willing to op- who say something like this at this point in time when she is so fragile and so looking for anything to help her that she is willing to put a bit too much trust in them, be a bit too ready to trust. It might be. What, what do you think? Do you think Bostler actually thought this about Antonio? I would, say, he I would was say of him in- that, yes, I think he does believe this, but in the same way that he is the type of person who can have entirely correct moral beliefs and yet still go on to be a monster. Yeah, because I wasn't sure, because I, I could see two different ways you could interpret this in production. One being Bostler actually thinks Antonio is a moral person and wants to stand up for him, completely ignorant to the fact that Antonio is the Duchess's husband. Or it could be that, no, this is just how good a spy Bostler is, is that he knows the best way to get a confession is to side with the person he suspects, that he's the only spy good enough, the only person smart enough to suspect the right man. Certainly. And and I like that either... Either interpretation could work in a production, um, but they both say very different things about the character of Bossler. One emphasizes his hypocrisy, while the other emphasizes his abilities. On an entirely separate note, I am just remembering that there was, in terms of actresses, how how you said you haven't seen this play. But no. what age do you imagine that um, the Duchess is? Well, it's interesting. I always imagine the Duchess is like at the beginning of the play in her late twenties. Um, but I have seen that the actresses who have played the Duchess have been quite a range in age. So yes, because this is something that my. Uh, my Shakespeare professor, Peter Grove, was talking about that when it comes to these kinds of roles, we have this thing where the the text of the play doesn't really suggest age. I think here it does suggest she's quite young. But the she had three uh, children, so yes, well, that that can happen over the course of a few years. <laughs> so she she might be quite young here. But there's this thing where, like with Lady Macbeth, uh, he was he was complimenting the Roman Polanski thing for making Lady Macbeth an incredibly young woman. Being a young woman, you think, oh, you don't actually mean this. You, you think you're a murderer, but you're, you don't actually have the, enough life experience to know this about yourself. But he's saying that the reason why people have this image of Lady Macbeth as an older woman, like in her middle, middle age, is because it's a big role. And so you give it to the most respectable and best actress in the company. And those tend to be women who have been working for quite a few decades. Yeah. So there's nothing in the text that says this is an, a middle-aged woman. It's just a fact of you know professional acting. So in a lot of productions, you will have the Duchess played by a. It's a great role for a woman, and so you will have a middle-aged woman playing it. But that fundamentally changes how we view her. Uh, whereas in the recent Globe production, the Globe Theatre production, we have her being played by you know a young, fresh-faced woman, quite young, you know, still heat of the blood. And also another way that this. It interfere well. It affects the way we view the play. Is that the person because the Duchess and Ferdinand are twins? They are the same age. So you, uh, you know, if you just let your mind work, at least in my mind, I always thought of Ferdinand as being this, you know, big, thick, sort of uh, big bearded guy, incredibly macho, and sort of late thirties, early forties, that kind of person. But if he's, you know, the same age as her in their early twenties, 
in the Globe Theatre production, he's a sort of sallow, 20-year-old, sort of incredibly... Um, he sort of looks like an incel, frankly. <laughs> he looks like a sort of red pill, angry guy on the internet, that sort of guy. <laughs> it does affect how you view his character. <laughs> Interestingly, looking through past productions, um, just cheating on Wikipedia at the moment, Helen Mirren played the Duchess at the age of 35, which is kind of what I pictured it without too much effort. Yeah, so one... Do you imagine that a thirty-five-year-old Mirren playing the Duchess? Because that—that uh, to me sounds like a very good casting choice. I would say yes. I'd say that. I would say that there's no real bad um, age casting, but I'd say that there is certain. I mean, it needs to be young. What can be classified as a young widow, but it, I'd say that it's the choice of age will always inevitably affect how we view these characters. Oh, I really do want to see that version of the play. That was a 1980 play for the Royal Exchange with Bob Hoskins playing Bostler and Pete Postlethwaite as Antonio. So that would have been I w- quite a good I, play. I wish the, the Super Mario Brothers people were in the audience saying, that's the man! That's the man we need! Oh, for, for me, Bob Hoskins will forever be um, the detective in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Certainly. Ah, so now we go on to the next scene, and this is where the Duchess is caught. She is she because she's planning the way she plans to escape is by going on a pilgrimage, pretending to go on a pilgrimage, and then from there, you know, running away. Yes. But she is caught, and we get this via two pilgrims talking about it. Oh, do you see what happened over there? Oh, what's happening? Oh, she's been caught, and the Pope has essentially taken her lands. Uh, so. You know, she, she's lost her lands, and later on we learn that Antonio has also lost his lands. So they are essentially impoverished now. And this scene, this is entirely secondary, uh, but there was a... Uh, have you heard of Arthur Whaley, the uh, sinologist, the, late, the early 20th century translator of classical Chinese and Japanese texts? Have you heard of him? No, no, I haven't. Well, he's the one who did the first English translation of Journey to the West and the tale of Genji, those sorts of things. Wow, cool! But he did—he he did a collection of no plays, you know, those Japanese yep. um, sort of semi-religious Buddhist plays from the Middle Ages. And because no one in the West had heard of these things before, he needed to explain, he needed to give them an idea of what this form was. And so he—he he did a short synopsis of a proposed version for the Duchess of Malfi, done as a no play. And this would have been the centerpiece of the play. These two pilgrims coming up and, and saying, oh my, what has happened here? And then the ghost of the Duchess of Malfi would appear and tell them the entire story. So that is quite an interesting way of putting it. I'd like to see someone take that synopsis and make it into a genuine production. That would be kind of cool, yeah. But, you know, that, that, that was a time when John Webster was popular enough among a cultured audience that, oh, I want to make this understandable. What's a play everyone has heard of? Oh, The Duchess of Malfi. You couldn't do that today. It had to be Hamlet or something. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, this play isn't very well recognised. Like, uh, that that said, you know, they are still adapting it, but it seems to be a, ooh, look at us, we're adapting something quite different here. It's the, we have done 10 Shakespeare's, let's do one Marlowe, 
or if we're feeling incredibly uh, risky, let's be <laughs> one Webster. Yeah, which is sad because, as I said, I, I other than the length, I highly regard this play. Certainly. The part of this podcast, as I said, is that I don't just want to do Shakespeare. I want to bring light to uh, non-Shakespeare things because quite a lot of bad Shakespeare is elevated purely by his own gravity. I think that's a mixed metaphor, but I'm going with it. Uh, no, gra- you don't raise with gravity, you go down with gravity. Anyway, Shakespeare brings a lot of bad stuff with him and a lot of good stuff has gone by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree completely. And if there was like an accident, some stationer's guild had accidentally said, oh, I don't know, The Shoemaker's Holiday was written by Shakespeare. People will be saying, oh, look at how lovely this is. Look at how lovely this is. But now we have people saying, oh, of course, no one remembers The Shoemaker's Holiday. That must mean it's terrible. It's like, no, no. I, I find I find there's this thing people do like online where they'll be talking about some writer and they'll say, oh, this writer got into an argument with Shakespeare. They were having a spat with Shakespeare. But who remembers this writer anymore? And I don't and I personally don't view posterity as being that great an argument. I find a lot of good stuff has gone away. Oh, no, I, I agree with you. Um We've lost a lot of good stuff and we've retained a lot of bad stuff for whatever reason. Um, I think our ability to maintain archives, for want a better reason, uh, way of putting it, is terrible. And it's still terrible. We, we still have a lot of stuff that we've lost from the 80s and the 70s that might one day be looked at as, you know, lost treasures. Or they'll go, oh, look how amazing Big Bang Theory is because it's still around, so it must be incredible. Moving on, we have the... So the Duchess's lands have been taken from her, and now she and Antonio and her children are trekking through some field somewhere, some place between cities, and she is complaining that, oh no, my all my my train, my my servants have dwindled down to this, which implies, I mean, in terms of reasonability, of course, you know, when you have no money to pay your servants, of course they're going to leave you. But this does imply that she has inspired no loyalty among her people. This is from the perspective. So yes, as a modern person, I can entirely understand that. Why would you keep working for someone who can't pay? You? Yeah, but from a thematic point of view. She has no loyal servants, which might imply that she has not cultivated a good house. Again, except for Cariola, who, you know, I love. Mm-hmm. But then an Bossola comes by and he said, this is, he hands her some letters from Ferdinand and Ferdinand isn't even trying to be anything other than villainous winking. He says something like, um, say, oh, Antonio, I want your heart. Wink, wink. Say, I want your head. Wink wink and because john webster thinks the audience is idiots he needs she needs to he needs to explain what these incredibly clunky villain speeches mean yeah yeah i i think this scene works though you know i think the this scene especially works when you consider that bossler comes like bossler could have just taken the duchess right there but instead plays out the scene. Oh, I'm going to give you letters and give you a choice, even though I know you're not going to have a choice in the end. 
do you think he intentionally gives Antonio a chance to run away? Um, it's a good question. I think it might be more that he gives Antonio a chance to hand himself over. We have here Antonio making a somewhat prophetic thing to say to... He's about to leave. He's saying, oh, my love, I'm going to leave. But he says here, he's like, and think not how unkindly we are used. Man, like Cassia, is proved best being bruised. Which, given how she dies, uh, this is really going to suggest, uh, bear itself to be true. But the Duchess says, must I, like a slave-born Russian, account it praise to suffer tyranny? Which is a brilliant line. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's a, that's definitely something you'd like to say to a few people. <laughs> it's like, oh, in my day, we, I had to put up with a lot of awful things. Like, must I, like a slave-born Russian, account it praise to suffer tyranny? No, I shall not, sir. I don't care if you have to make your boss coffee. I'm not going to. But suffice it to say, she's captured by Bossler and taken to imprisonment. And that is Act 3. And how is that only just over halfway in this story? How is that not, like, towards the end of this story? Some people do suggest that a lot of people find that this play slows down a bit and sort of loses its muster by the fact that Webster chose to have the Duchess killed in Act 4 rather than Act 5. Well, yeah. Um, But I also kind of feel like, why not just have Bossler kill her now instead of taking her captive? I think the story... If we have this argument, then we have essentially said that most James Bond films are terrible. I mean, they are mostly terrible, but not for that reason. Yeah, but th- this does seem like a very... Yeah, why not just have Ferdinand have Bossler kill her now and then... I mean, end. with, with, uh, with <laughs> I, I think the reason for that is Ferdinand wants to torture her. There's, there's a, yeah. He wants to show her the effigies of... Well, so this is for the next scene. But I do think he does definitely just... I want to torture her. I want her to feel pain. I don't want to kill far away. I want to see her dead body. I want to see you murder Yes, but do we really need as much time spent on having her captured and then tortured, as we do the entire marriage. I'd say that maybe this gets into the man like the Cassia has proved best being bruised. But uh, I, in terms of time on stage, you would spend as much time on her torture as you do on her marriage. And to me, in terms of story structure, that's horrifyingly bad. I found this especially moving. That it is, <laughs> I, I, I'd remove, but you know, this is for Act Four. So. <laughs> Act Four. The Duchess has been in prison, and we we have Ferdinand conferring with Bossler to how well she's holding up, and Bossler seems to be quite proud of her. Seems to say, oh, she's bearing up quite well. She is, let me find it. Ah, so Ferdinand asks, how's she doing? How's she bearing in her imprisonment? And Bossler says, nobly. I'll describe her. She's sad, as one long used to it. And she seems rather to welcome the end of misery than shun it. A behaviour so noble as gives majesty to adversity. You may discern the shape of loveliness more perfect in her tears than in her smiles. Even he says, I have to hand it to her. He's doing well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it is a sign of respect. But I, th- I think it's also a, you know, a- another indication of Bossler's complexity in that. I do view this it, scene it... as being the one where Bossler's. We've been mentioning how Bossler is a character who he knows he's awful. But I do view that towards the end of the scene, we do view him moving away from being honest about himself into rationalizing his own actions. That he's getting to the point where his knowledge of the evil of his actions either requires him to stop or to rationalize away what he's doing. And he chooses to rationalize away what he's doing. Yeah. We'll get to that when we come to it. We we get to the most the big special effects shots of this play. In terms of staging, this play was done in I think it was Blackfriars. Now this is a indoor playhouse that's lit by candles. So you have to imagine that this is a very dark place. It's it's lit, but it's you can't see things that clearly. It's like so we have here Ferdinand is trying to torture the Duchess by coming up to her. He says, Turn off all the lights, turn off all the lights. And he says, Now, my dear, kiss my hand, kiss my hand. And she kisses the hand, she takes the hand, and then he leaves, and she still has the hand in her hand. So what is this? Oh no, it's a severed hand. I'm holding a severed hand. Now this is a gruesome moment, which in a dark playhouse, in a dimly lit playhouse, seeing this obviously fake hand, it wouldn't look obviously fake. So I can imagine that. No, I think you could, all, all these scenes of um, grotesque, uh, you could see them done fairly well for the time. I think they're all reasonable expectations for a stage performance. And depending on how they do the, then later on, in order to throw her even deeper into despair, they reveal this is another one of those good scenes where it's, it, it, I feel like that they are they come in and say oh look at these awful things and they pull back the curtains in the back of the stage and oh my god there are the dead bodies of your husband and your two children and she is going oh no how awful but it turns out that these aren't it, it later revealed that these are just wax sculptures yeah, no, I, I think it works, and I think, I think these scenes of um, the grotesque, both here and then in the killings, they're more, they're more suitable in this play than say, the attempts Shakespeare makes in Titus Andronicus. It is, but, more... which is a play I love, but is a little more unrealistic. This, this feels like something the character of Ferdinand would do. Like, I'm fully accepting that this is what this mad duke would do. It is in character for someone who is not only incredibly angry, but also someone who can take the time to calm, to, in a state of extensive passive aggression, construct. And he, he, he had to intentionally... Uh, commission someone to make these. Yeah, but I could believe that before I could believe that he cooked someone into a pie. It's more believable. <laughs> I believe so. Although, believing someone was baked into a pie, this was in 
at the time, at least, I mean, it's maybe a common mythological thing, but that was written in history books. So people, even if it's not something that actually did happen, it's something that people at the time would believe is a possibility of happening. True. I, I, I just for myself, I think the the logistics of it, it would be easier to find a dead guy's hand and put together a couple of dummies or, you know, get people to lie around. That that, that would be an easier job. <laughs> it re- it was like someone was saying that you have to imagine the amount of, you know, the Saw movies are incredibly intimidating and incredibly scary. Until you imagine the jigsaw guy going to the Bunnings to get all the necessary stuff he needs to make this death chamber. It, when you imagine the practicalities, you sort of think, would you have done that? This isn't, this is just funny. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think... I think this is good in that it wouldn't be funny. Certainly. She is... So the Duchess, quite understandably, gets very angry. She starts raining down curses on Bossler, saying, Thou art a fool, then, to waste pity on a thing so wretched as cannot pity itself. I am full of daggers. Puff! Let me blow these vipers from me. Don't, Don't pity me. In fact, kill me. It's awful to pity me when I can't even pity myself. I want to die. Which, we were talking about how she is facing death with a good deal of strength. But throughout this, we get a shift in how she is approaching death with strength. At the beginning here, she is in despair. Now, to a Christian audience of the time, being despairing onto suicide, that is a sin. It is, if you despair onto suicide, then that is essentially a lack of faith in God. Because you are saying that, because to have faith in God means you think God can make things better. If you despair to the point where you want to kill yourself, that means you don't have that faith in God. So this, to a, the contemporary audience, maybe it's understandable, but it is not a morally praiseworthy version of strength before death. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is an interesting choice for Webster to make because it wouldn't be conceived as moral for most audience members at the time. It's, but given what happens in the next scene, we are moving towards uh, getting into a more Christian state, a more stoic cum Christian state. Oh, yes, but but that's because he really pushes the the trope of the long-suffering martyr type. In the next scene, in this scene, it, it's. I, I think this this is the scene where he's trying to really paint the Duchess as, at her wit's end, she hasn't been able to come back to being, composed. This is to show how well she, how, how much she is struggling is because she isn't composed. So she's making these immoral choices. And then we have the next scene. I don't, they, it's one of those things where they, this entire act is in this, basically this cell, but it's entirely set in this house with these same few people. Or did they move the madmen to this house? I think they did. The other way around. I thought they put her where the madmen were, but I can't remember. He says, I am, so Ferdinand says, I am resolved to move. 
from Forth a common hospital. All the mad okay. folks are removed from Forth. So it's not that they're there. It's that yeah. he brought them to her. So yes, this is one of those scenes where it is a bit dodgy. Just using these, ma- it you know, I, I can imagine some sixty-year-old uh, uh, commentator, op-ed writer saying, "Oh, it's bloody political correctness that you can't do the madman thing in um, the Duchess of Malfi anymore." It didn't doesn't everyone in our country know about the madman scene of Duchess of Malfi? <laughs> uh, this is the th- the thing about these plays is that there is about the two, his two most famous plays, The White Devil and Duchess of Malfi, is that one of the, some of the central parts of them are not exactly doable considering modern sensitivities, like the madman scene in this one. And for The White Devil, uh, blackface, um, a character blacking up, is quite important for the plot of the later part of that play. Yeah. Although I, I, I didn't, actually think the madman was too insensitive to mental health issues to be completely honest um and in t- well i was i was going to say the reason why i think it's fine in here was i didn't get the impression that they were made sinister by the play like ferdinand tried to use them as something sinister but the play itself doesn't treat them as such I must admit that I always sort of skip over this section, not because it's, you know, offends my sensibilities, more because like quite a lot of things in this play, as we have been saying, you do feel they could have cut oh. it for time. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I I this is this is a scene that I would have cut, the madman scene I would have definitely cut. I don't think it offers much and I think it it again maybe it was here for comic relief and I just didn't get that intention from it. But yeah, it's it slows the pace at a time where I don't think the pace should be slowed. Um, but I, now we get. I the think meet- a deep and meaningful conversation between the Duchess and Cariola would be enough in this scene. But now we get to the meat of the scene. Yeah, Bostola comes in dressed. Stranglings. Well, but, well, this is before that point. We get here. This is done in the manner of, uh, at the time, there were a lot of preparation for death manuals. What you should do when you're dying in order to set the world at naught. And Bossler comes in and is essentially doing this. He's giving all those commonplaces about how, oh, you are nothing. As a living person, you are just a decaying flesh. You are worm food. Death is no big deal. Now, I always viewed this as being sort of double-edged. On the one hand, he is doing her a favour. He is giving her comfort. He is saying to her, look, don't feel bad about dying. There's nothing bad about dying. But there's also the other end, which that he knows he is going to kill her. Actually, he's not going to kill her. He can't bring himself to kill her. He gets someone else to kill her. But he is trying to pretend if death is worth nothing, then dying is okay. But also killing is okay. Well, so, the, yeah, that's how I read it. Was it was very much a him rationalizing to himself that yeah. he's like, I, I'm not doing anything too terrible. This is quite natural when you really think about it. He is rationalizing it both for himself and for others. Yeah. So he is saying. So the bossler is saying, pretending to be this person. It's like thou art some great woman, sure, or being riot. For Riot begins to sit on thy forehead, clad in grey hairs, twenty years sooner than on a merry milkmaid's. Thou sleeps worse than if a mouse should be forced to take up her lodging and eat care, a little infant that breeds its teeth 
should it lie with thee, would cry out as if thou were the more unquiet bedfellow. And now we have the most famous line in the play where the Duchess says, I am Duchess of Malfi still. Now, how do we view this line? Because some people, when they play this, you know, he has said to her, you are just worm meat. You are just a sad woman. You are just, death is a blessing. You are, life is nothing to have. And she is saying, no, I am Duchess of Malfi still. Some people play this being defiance. I am Duchess of Malfi. You don't talk to me like this. I am powerful. I am this powerful person. On the other hand, there are some actresses who play this as sort of a sort of a, a weak sort of way, this sort of desperately trying to put up some defense, like, oh no, no, I am Duchess of Malfi still, but sort of failing in that case. And right. there's an even a more level of uh, meaning here when one considers that this is a quote, this is a an adaptation of a line from Seneca's Medea, which I think the line is Medea Sum, which is I am Medea still. Now Medea is a woman who kills her own children to spite her husband. Now that does add in quite a lot of, uh, that does almost go entirely the opposite of what the scene is trying to show. But how do, what, how do you read this line? Or did you notice this line the first time you read it? Yeah, I noticed it. I, I read it very much as a, like, I guess somewhere in between that what she's saying is not about the importance of being the Duchess, but about the importance of her identity and the fact that you can't take a person's identity by killing them. You can take their like physical body, but that doesn't stop them from being who they are. And so he could try and degrade her, but she's still the person who she is. It would work better if we gave the Duchess a name. So if we gave her her real name... Uh, if I... I'd say that in this context, you know, in, in a lot of cases, yep. when you don't give women, it's in a lot of uh, plays of the time, a lot of novels, when you refuse to give a woman a name, that's almost it's a sort of feminism 101 thing. You, you haven't given them a name. But in this context, I think that it actually has, I won't say feminist, but I'd say it's in favor of this woman's agency, in that she is only known by her position of power. It's not Giovanna, that, which, which was the woman yeah, that's based it. on, but you know, this by saying, I am Duchess of Malfi still, no, I am a powerful person. I am a political leader. I am this. She is not some private woman. She is a political leader. See, I don't, I don't read it as her trying to remind him that she's a political leader. I think it's her saying, it doesn't matter what you want to say or do or whatever. I'm not changing who I am. You can't degrade me to not being a political leader. You can't uh, hold me with reverence when I'm gone and say all I was was a political leader you killed. I am who I am, and I'm okay with that. That, that. That's how I read it. I read it very much as her saying, no, no matter what people say and do to me, I have lived my life the way I want to live it. The mistakes I've made are mine. The good choices I've made are mine. No matter what happens next, I'm still me. And if what happens next? Me, I am me. And what happens next is moving closer and closer to death, where Bossler firstly pretends to be the person taking measurements for you know, a tomb, and then he becomes, I am the common bellman. So saying, I am the person who's sig- signaling your death. And then he's going to become the person who brings... <laughs> the Duchess says, even now thou saidst thou was a tomb maker. And Bossler says, "Twas by degrees to bring you, t'was to bring you by degrees to mortification. 
He's like, I am slowly leading you towards death. Mm-hmm. And the murderers come in, I think. Ah, so the executioners enter and they force um, Cariola off. But Cariola does have some strength. She says, I will die with her. This strength doesn't last until later, but at this point, she is saying, no, I will die with her. Ah. And Vossler says, you know, you're going to be strangled to death. And th- she has some of the sort of best lines in the play here, where Bossler says to her, why aren't you scared? He's like, yet me thinks the manner of death should much afflict you. The cord should terrify you. And the Duchess says, not a whit. What would it pleasure me to have my throat cut with diamonds? Which is, you know, that is frankly a brilliant line. And then she goes on, you know, they say, you know, put, put, the, rope, put the rope around my neck. And then she says, pull and pull strongly, for your able strength must pull down heaven upon me. Now that is a that is a line that gives me shivers. It is a it is oh, such a, a brilliant line. line. It's not merely saying that oh no, after I don't oh I will mock you from heaven. When you kill me, I shall go to heaven. It's like no, I am making the fact that you are killing me. I am making that the act of going to heaven. You are doing me a favor right now. Yeah, yeah, and it's lines that, like that that make me go. How is this play not recognized at the same level as say Hamlet? I, you, know, you, was, you can't you can't see lines like that and go, oh yeah, yeah, this guy was a lesser version of Shakespeare. He was for such a long time. He was mainly viewed as, oh, he's an edgy guy. He's a shock value kind of guy. All these dead bodies, stranglings, deaths, stuff like that. They viewed him as being, and fr- frankly, even in you know Shakespeare and Love, there's that scene where a little boy is going up to Shakespeare and saying. Oh, I love Titus Andronicus. I loved it. All that death and sex. I love that. That's what play should be. What's your name, little boy? It's John Webster, sir. That is, that is that's even his reputation today, in as much yeah. as he has a reputation today. And look, I think it's fair to say, you know, that Webster was likely influenced by Shakespeare, but Shakespeare was influenced by the people before him. And that doesn't make Shakespeare any less. No one says, well, Shakespeare's not as good as Petrarch. The Duchess is strangled. She's not, it's going to be revealed that she's not quite dead. She is only almost dead. I tried. (laughs) Yes. And Ferdinand comes in, and this is where Ferdinand has his, what have I done? Mine eyes dazzle to see her body. And this is where Bossler does seem had to move towards rationalizing his actions even more. So like at five, uh, let me find it. Um, So Bossler says, okay, so Ferdinand says, is she dead? And Bossler says, she is what you'd have her. Now that is a very roundabout way of saying what's happened. It is saying, he has desperately said, no, it is you. You wanted her this way. I didn't do this. You wanted her this way. He is trying to avoid admitting what he has done. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's definitely says, trying to... Cover her face. My eyes dazzle. She died young. I'm just... So this is where Ferdinand... And then Ferdinand is basically saying, look, I asked you to do this, but no, I had no right to ask you to do this. Therefore, you must not accuse me of telling you to do this. You had no right to follow my orders. <laughs> he is... He is also trying to disclaim responsibility for this. Everyone is looking at this dead body and trying to say, no, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. 
And he says, I bade thee when I was distracted of my wits, go kill my dearest friend. Yep. I'd say that that is perhaps a exaggeration of their relationship. Yeah. Hmm. Yep, definitely yeah. an exaggeration. And then, worst of the worst, Ferdinand says, I'm not going to pay you. I'm not going to pay you. My payment to you is letting you go free. I, I... Yeah, they, they, they really screw him over multiple times. And I think it adds to not not just his hypocrisy, but it adds to why he feels trapped. Like he doesn't see a way to leave until he gets that money. And they know that. They know he's not going to go anywhere. He's keep going to keep working for as long as he feels like they owe him. He he he's got that. What what do you call it? The um, the fallacy of the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, sunk cost fallacy. That that that's what seems to be happening to the the guy. Is that he's like, well, I have to keep doing these evil things for them, otherwise they'll never give me my final payment. There is one point where he, he Bossler says, "I would not change my peace of conscience for all the wealth of Europe." Now that's a very easy thing to say when he's not been paid. That's a, that's yeah. a sour grapes thing. Yeah, it it is strange. Like one wonders whether he would still believe that if he had been offered even what he was owed. <laughs> Throughout this podcast, via editing and via summarizing, I'm desperately trying to keep these things under three hours. <laughs> we, but. I think I can be forgiven for this. I do believe I am making this shorter than it could have been in describing it. I have removed. We're, we're still much shorter than the play itself. Yes. If I had done this in the <laughs> way, I, if we had done this on a scene by scene basis, like we did for the first, for the two gentlemen of Verona, this would be in our fourth hour. Oh, yes. We would never finish this. <laughs> yeah, it, it's rough. It's, it's rough, the length of this play. Um, and it's not only just because of all the things he wants to put in it, but every scene he really drags out. Yeah, um, he is a person who... Quite honestly, I skimmed Act 5 because, one... honest to God, why wouldn't you just end with the murder of the Duchess? One gets the sense, for, but to go back to that previous point about the length of this, one does get the sense from John Webster. Like someone was saying that... We can tell a few things about his character, John Webster, from how he writes his, you know, those dedicatory epistles. Like saying, oh, thank you, my good Lord, for paying me for making this thing. Most people, when they do those things, it's very, it's very formal. It's very, oh, yes, sir, thank you. I'm such an awful person. Thank you for giving this. Thank you for letting me write this for you. It's very, it's very set. You can't tell anything from them. But John Webster comes across as an incredibly thin-skinned guy always responding to perceived criticisms of him, always trying to defend himself. He's a very defensive person. And one gets the sense that he is that kind of, he is that kind of very precious perfectionist kind of artist who he would be insufferable if it wasn't for the fact that he can sort of uh, live up to his own hype. He, he is the type of person who doesn't want to edit his stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't no, my lines are beautiful. I want to write this five pages on this one that I could say in one page. But you have to admit that most of those pages are good, even if you wish he had still cut down to one page. He is that kind of artist. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. If, if you take any any chunk of writing, he is brilliant at it. Just as a storyteller. <laughs> he did expand like a 30-page or 50-page short story 
into a four-hour uh, <laughs> play. Five. Antonio and his friend Delio are realizing just how dire their state is. They don't know the Duchess is dead yet, but Antonio now knows that he has no land. His lands have been confiscated and he doesn't have it anymore. And And this seems like a real Antonio move. He his <laughs> final his plan is to say that his last ditch plan is to essentially confront the Cardinal, to just rush into his room and sort of beg him. Hopefully things will turn out well, he hopes. But I think I think even he does know that this is a terrible plan. This is not going to work out. At most, he'll have to kill the Cardinal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, he this say, he does very... say, for better fall once than be ever falling. That's one way to justify a suicide mission. And then we have... We have we see exactly what the guilt has caused in uh, Ferdinand. He has taken on lycanthropy, the belief that he is uh, a werewolf, essentially. But it does he, he they express it in a very uh, disturbing way, where the doctor says he met the Duke about midnight in a lane behind Saint Mark's Church with the leg of a man upon his shoulder, and he howled fearfully, said he was a wolf. Only the difference was, a wolf skin was hairy on the outside, his on the inside. Now that is a, that is an image, being hairy on the inside. <laughs> yeah, and that's a that's one of the most um, referred to moments from the Duchess of Malfi when you look at how it's referred to in literature and culture since then. That that little line is actually referred to more than any of the others. It is. You don't expect it from a character who is uh, who's just a side doctor. Although I, I do think this is a bit of a cop out because I don't think Ferdinand would have felt guilty. The Ferdinand of the first three acts, I don't think he would have felt guilty for killing his sister. Hmm. I'd say that it is not out of the question, given that in my mind, the reason why he is so angry at his sister is because he has some dis- he has some um, sublimated <laughs> incest. You think he's guilty because he I... killed his lover, not his sister? Yes, I'd say <laughs> that if you view it from the perspective of the reason he is so angry is because he loves his sister to such an excessive extent, then the fact that he feels guilty now that he's killed her, that isn't... It, it's sort of a tragic contradiction of his character, that the person he loves the most is also when he perceives that she's done him wrong, he kills her. But because he does love her, this makes him hate himself for doing that. Yeah. I, I, I still feel like both the feelings of guilt and him turning mad from it are a bit, a bit of a weak punishment for Webster to write for him. He's also killed. I, I do. I do like the later punishment of him attacking his own brother. Um, um, but I, I, I do feel the whole like if you if you place this as oh no, this is Ferdinand just continuing his madness that he had from the beginning. That would read better to me than oh, he's turned mad because of what happened. 
Yes, yeah, so it is more a coming out of some deeply ingrained yeah. madness in him. Like, oh, this is why he's so crazy. <laughs> and we have Bossler moving on. We have Bossler. He is pretending still to be on the side of uh, the Cardinal and Ferdinand. Yes. And the Cardinal, at this point, the Cardinal's plausible deniability. The Cardinal is explicitly pretending he knows nothing about the murder. So he. So he, in order to, to convince Bossel that he knows nothing about the murder, he says, oh, I am thinking of a man who the Duchess can marry. So this means that, ah, so he, he won't know that I think the Duchess is dead. But now we have uh, Julia's role in the story, the, um, the woman that the Cardinal is having sex with. We have Julia doing her role in the story, which is to seduce Bossler and essentially get seduced by Bossler. <laughs> And as a result of this, Bostler gets her to spy on the Cardinal, to get the Cardinal to admit a few things. Did you like this? Did you think that Julia would have this role in the story? I didn't expect it, but I'd also by this point forgotten Julia existed. Was was this like a good Chekhov's gun moment? No. No, it, it definitely wasn't. But as I said, I would have just removed Julia altogether. I'm sh- surely, surely you could find a better way of providing what she provided. So we have, uh, and this it has one of those weird scene. It has one of those you know shock value scenes where the cardinal says, "I'll tell you my secrets, but only on the proviso uh, that you." Kiss this Bible, but secretly he's poisoned the Bible. Now this goes to show uh, it, it is definitely a evil uh, Catholic from these plays sorts of things. That this is uh, a, a supposedly a man of God who happens to have a poisoned Bible on him. Yeah, do, do you think that he always has a poisoned Bible on him? So whenever he has someone he needs to get rid of, he just pulls out that Bible. Yeah. I, maybe to put it maybe to put it more realistically, he always has poison on him, but he has no hesitation to put that poison on a Bible. <laughs> no, I like to think he has two Bibles that he swaps out based on who he's around, just in case. You know, like a magician who always has a pack of cards on him. Yes, uh, the the what, what was that? Um, you, uh, you ever seen the court jester, the vessel with the pestle and the flagon with the dragon, trying to figure yes. which one's poison? <laughs> Uh, but he is saying he gets her to kiss it and she dies again. He says, and now you won't be able to tell anyone about this. And he's like, that's not for me to say because there's someone hiding in the closet. And Bossler says, ha ha, I found you. I have discovered you. Yeah, yeah, no, but Bossler says, I have caught you, but I'll still kill Antonio. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what, what, what? Why would you still want to kill Antonio after discovering all this? Yes. He is. I th- I'm not sure what Bossler's plan is. I, at this point, I I do think that Bossler does not want to kill Antonio. He's pretending to be. Yeah. But at this point, I'd say that you have him alone in a room. There's no witnesses. You. This is the moment when you can kill him. This is the best moment you're going to have. Um, but we have the next scene. This is either. Uh, so let's skip over the next scene and go to the to. Um, we have the Cardinal. As we said at the beginning, the Cardinal is someone who's just a bit too clever. 
And this is where sort of lacing is due. We, we get there's palpable dramatic irony when the cardinal says to uh, his lots of his uh, the, the lords in the room, he says, I'm going to deal with my brother. I want none of you to come into the room. It doesn't matter if you hear screaming from that room. It doesn't happen, matter if you hear me screaming. I don't want you coming up into that room. Now, the reason Oh, why, I wonder what's going to happen. Yes. <laughs> you know, the reason for this is that, you know, Ferdinand is insane, and so he doesn't want anyone coming in there where Ferdinand might accidentally say something incriminating. But when you hear this, you know what's going to happen. He's going to, someone's going to try to kill him, and he's going to start screaming, and the people will say, oh, but he told us not to come in there. <laughs> so, yes, it is, it is almost comedic. It's, it's so palpably comedic <laughs> what is going to happen to him. And then we have, it, it's, it's dark, and Bossola is moving around in the darkness, and he, and essentially, he kills Antonio. He accidentally kills Antonio, thinking it's someone else. Yeah. This is one of those scenes where I am, when I first read this scene, I thought, oh, this is meant to be ridiculous. The fact that this is, shows how awf, awfully incompetent Bossola is, that he intends to do good, but he Merely because there isn't enough light, he kills the person he aimed to help. But for someone at the time, like this is an era before electric lights, and so yeah, I took this as a Hamlet killing. Yes. Um, what's his name? Polonius. Polonius. Yeah, I took this very much as a Hamlet Polonius situation. We're supposed to feel sorry for Bosler here. I don't think we're supposed to think him stupid for doing it. And for like an audience of this time, this is an era, you know, before electric lights, if you're going home at night and it's dark, even if you have a lamp in front of you, you can barely see a few feet in front of you. And this is an era where, you know, street violence was far more socially acceptable. And I mean, Bossler just found out that the Cardinal's planning to have him killed. If he felt like someone was sneaking up on him at a time when he knew people were out to kill him, it makes sense that he'd stab first and ask questions later. It is... Uh... It is definitely a understandable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, Bossler says the famous lines, we are merely the star tennis balls struck and banded which way please them, which Stephen Fry turned into the title yeah. of his modern version of the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. It's, which it's, the American publishers way. insisted on changing to the title to Revenge. Because the stars tennis, it's, it's a metaphor that you, you accept in an Elizabethan play, but it, it's not, it, it's not that, it sort of sounds weird, doesn't it? Well, it sounds a little weird, but it, I think that's also just more evidence of how American publishers aim for the lowest common denominator. Mm. So I wouldn't hold too much interest in it. Remember, they, they thought their readers wouldn't understand what the Philosopher's Stone is. Right. I think that's the perfect example of what publishers think of American readers. Well, imagine, I'm not saying imagine they what, are right or wrong in thinking about American readers that way, but it is how they think. I, I mean, you say that, but if you look at the the uh, French title of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, it is Harry Potter à l'école des magiciens. So it's Harry Potter at the school for magicians. Now that is incredibly, so not Philosopher's Stone, not Sorcerer's Stone. I'm telling you exactly what's in this book. Yeah, I, th I think that, see, my view of that is that's the French trying to belittle an English piece of work. Hmm. 
<laughs> to say, don't don't worry about this. It isn't it isn't interesting enough to mention the philosopher's stone. It's just a book about a kid at a school. Yes. So I we we, we don't want to give it the credit of having anything to do with such a cool piece of literary history. <laughs> and so Antonio has been killed. And so and then the ending. So Bosla comes up into the cardinal's room in order to try to kill the cardinal. And Ferdinand, insane, he joins the fray. And Ferdinand, he thinks he's in a battlefield. He's so mad, he thinks he's in a battlefield and they're fighting each other. And I think it's Ferdinand who actually kills the cardinal. Is that right? Yeah, Ferdinand attacks the cardinal and the cardinal takes a long time to die. <laughs> is is what happens. Um, Ferdinand uh, so doesn't it says do Ferdinand, um, so in, in, this is Ferdinand's stage direction. He wounds the cardinal and in the scuffle gives Bosler his death wound. So yeah. if the person who actually does the, the killing is not Bosler, Bosler can't even do that. He can't even get revenge correctly. It is it is Ferdinand accidentally killing them both. Yeah, well, Ferdinand's swinging his sword around seems to get them both. And... Then Ferdinand, and then the thing what um, Bossler does is that he he's, he has a death wound, but then he gets up and he stabs Ferdinand. So and Bossler yep. says, "The last part of my life hath done me best service." Yep, might as well stab him. He didn't pay me my money, and now I'm dying. <laughs> now I think Bossler does it believing he's doing the honourable thing, um, and and I like that he gets that chance even though it it doesn't forgive him in any way he still gets to do that and i I like that he gets to do that and Um, and i'm okay with the whole everyone stabs each other ending i'm i've always been okay with that and i've been okay with it since hamlet and i've been okay with it since reservoir dogs and bossler one of his his dying speeches uh well he says in a mist no so uh, malateste first says Thou wretched thing of blood, how came Antonio by his death? And Bostler says, in a mist, I know not how, such a mistake as I've often seen in a play. Now that is, he's like, oh, this is so crazy, it could only happen in fiction. Now that's, that, that's usually a sign that a writer realizes that something's a bit dodgy about the plotting. But the fact that he says, in a mist, is like, that's, it. that's been his entire life before this point. He's been in a mist where he thinks, oh, doing bad things is okay. He hadn't, up until this point, he knew that what he was doing was wrong. But he, so he yeah. truly knew that it was a bad thing to do. He wouldn't do it. I mean, that is one way to look at moral epistemology, which I think maybe <laughs> is being put forward here. Uh, so he's, he's dying. Um, so he says, let worthy minds ne'er stagger in distrust to suffer death or shame for what is just. Mine is another voyage. Dies. <laughs> But the final lines go to Delio. Now, in this, uh, I've been trying to, in my attempt to shorten these summaries, I have been removing uh, sort of minor characters, which I call Delio. But Delio does get the final lines. And those final lines are, so Malateste first says, oh, sir, you will come too late. And Delio says, I heard so and was armed for it. Ere I came. Let us make noble use of this great ruin and join all our force establish this young hopeful gentleman in his mother's right who's pointing at the eldest son who's managed to survive the other two children the younger children are dead the duchess is dead antonio's dead but the eldest son is alive these wretched eminent things leave no more fame behind them 
than should one fall in frost and leave his print in snow. As soon as the sunshine did ever melt both form and matter, I have ever thought nature doth nothing so great for great men as when she's pleased to make them lords of truth. Integrity of life is fame's best friend, which nobly beyond death shall crown the end. Now this seems like, to me, this, this is, seems like somewhat of a glimmer of hope. But given that he says um, he's going to establish this young hopeful gentleman in his mother's right. Now, maybe this child is going to inherit a title. But remember, the Pope is taking her lands. So he's a guy with a title, but nothing else. It is a certainly an all for waste ending. There is even the glimmer of hope is just an incredibly slight glimmer. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like that in a tragedy. I don't want hope in a tragedy. That's why I love in Hamlet that it's the invading country that turns up to give the end. <laughs> and I, I think I think the speech from Basala is a pretty decent end speech. Certainly. I think it's as good as anything Shakespeare offered his characters. He certainly knew how to write. Yeah. And that is the Duchess of Malfi. And as usual at the end, we go around and we discuss one thing we liked about this. Greg, what's one thing you liked about this play? I liked that the characters had depth. Especially uh, a duchess that despite not having a name, has a lot of agency and has clear motivations and everything she does comes with a reason, even if you disagree with that reason. And when it comes Um, to what I like, I'd say that the Duchess's death scene, the entirety of the death scene, apart from the the madman, uh, this is... I mean, I don't want... I don't like talking about my own emotions, but this is one of the few times that I've ever actually cried reading something, that I did find it to be unusually moving, her death scene. Yeah. Now, I I think it is a grand death scene. I think it is a death scene worthy of the character that's been presented to that point. And Um, now, for negatives, and given how much we've been talking about it before, I'm going to take off the table the lengthy non-plot necessary parts of it. You can't say that you wish some facts oh. trimmed off it. Be more specific. Because that's that's my only major issue is that it's so fucking long. Um, <laughs> Alright, uh, I guess I guess the other, the other negative I would prov- I would offer up is perhaps we could have done more with um, how do I describe this? I I think one of the problems we have is not sure. I like that Ferdinand and the Cardinal both exist as two separate entities. I don't think we fully cover that they have separate motivations. I don't think we really delve into the Cardinal's motivations very well. So I I think some sort of improvement on why the Cardinal is like the way he is. I don't think we ever really get a grasp of that in the play. So that's probably the thing I'd like to see improved besides, 
you know, cutting it down by 25%. And when it comes to what I dislike, I would have liked to see... So before I was saying this is a play where the personal is political, so the personal stands in place of politics. But I would have liked to see the Duchess actually do some Duchess things. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. If, if if you wouldn't, I wouldn't mind having a play this length if the extra bits had been more important. And I think having her actually be a Duchess in a scene would have been an important thing to have. I agree. Yeah, definitely if we got some evidence of her being a good leader, it it would help. Or even a bad leader. Just an element of the political part of her, given that she is only known by her political title. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's the other thing I'd add. I, I wouldn't mind her actually having a name. <laughs> I, I think it would be improved by her having a name. I don't think it was held back too much by her not having a name. But I think a name that was used sparingly would have had a pretty powerful effect. That is the Duchess of Malfi. And Yay. next time, next time we are going to do Venus and Adonis. Shakespeare's narrative poem about a lusty cougar goddess trying to have sex with a handsome young man who is not having any of it. Saucy. You looking forward to that, Greg? I actually am. I like Venus and Adonis. I think it's it's, it's a good one. Hopefully Sophie will not be put off by it. And hopefully (laughs) Sophie will manage to get here. I hope we get some time to talk about the myth in general, too. Thank you for listening to Episode 3. The biographical details of John Webster's life were taken from Volume 1 of the works of John Webster from Cambridge University Press, edited by David Gundy, David Carnegie, and Macdonald P. Jackson. The intro, conclusion, and interstitial music is taken from Henry Purcell's The Fairy. Thank you for listening.